Oh, so it's good to be here. Uh, mornings. Do you guys, are you guys morning people? You're here. So that says something. Um, five o'clock. I, I, I've been thinking about it'd be great to have a night service of some sort because not everyone is a morning person. I'm not a morning person. And lately it's been, it's been worse. I've been staying up too late, to be honest. I started playing this stupid video game. And uh, just stay up a little too late. My wife hates video games. <laughs> Other wives are clapping. She doesn't understand video games, okay? She says that video games are a waste of time. Did someone say something? Well, she doesn't understand video games because the allure of video games is first, you just need to get to the next level. That's all you got to do before you go to bed. You have to get to the next level. There's that, but then there's also the allure of video games is that when you're trying to get to the next level, you don't have to think about anything else. That's really, I think, a huge part of it, what it's all about. A lot of the things we do, actually, more than just video games, watching TV, all sorts of much worse habits, a lot of it is just so we don't have to think. That's the way I see it. It's just so we don't have to think because... Thinking is not always enjoyable. Thinking, a lot of times, is painful. Thinking is very often worry. It's better to stay up late playing video games than to stay up late because you can't fall asleep because you're worried, right? That's the way I see it. And not sleeping because of worry is actually a pretty common problem. I did some reading this week. This really isn't surprising information that I'm going to share, but I came across an article that was speaking about a certain study that was done, and the name of the article was, Canadians fear debt almost as much as they fear death, and how there's this huge proportion of Canadians who are losing sleep because of financial worry. And uh, some of the statistics are, well, it makes sense why people are worrying. The average Canadian is month by month within $200 of insolvency, meaning for the average Canadian, we're living our lives one misfortune away from bankruptcy, basically. One thing going wrong, you know, the car needs a new transmission or an unforeseen bill or losing your job. It's just one, one misfortune away from things going terribly wrong. And then you add to it the uncertainty of our specific times where things are much more expensive than they used to be. It seems like it anyways. You know, 
inflation and uh, gas prices and interest rates, and people are losing sleep, am I going to be able to afford my mortgage? Am I ever even going to qualify for a mortgage? Will I be able to pay my rent? And it goes on and on from there. If you are the average Canadian, you know what I'm talking about because you also worry about money. And it's really not money. It's, it's not actually money, specifically money. It's not like the paper stuff or the, the number in your bank account. At the heart of it, it's, it's not that. It's, 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 it's our sense of security and our sense of comfort. And for some, it's even our sense of identity, our reputation. I have to live up to a certain standard. People are looking at me. If I can't afford my rent, then my reputation and my sense of self-worth is going to be lost. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to worry about. It's a lot easier to just play video games and just get to the next level, right? Well, good news. You don't have to do either of those things. Okay? You don't have to play video games. You don't have to worry. As it stands in life, there is another level. There is another level that we can get to where we can be free of that kind of life, that kind of worrying about security and comfort and reputation. There is another level to be achieved where all of that, all of that worry can be, that can be a level that we beat, a level that's gone. I hope I got your attention. It's what we're going to be discussing today as we dive into the Bible. First, I'll, I'll say a short prayer, and then we'll do just that. Father God, help me bring forth your word in a way that is truly uh, sharing you, and help us perceive you, the living God who is alive, who is here. Let my words be a demonstration of you, and your truth, and your power. I ask this in your name, Jesus, Son of God, Savior. Amen. Okay, let's actually pick it up. Just where we left off last week, the end of chapter 5, uh, you might recall this being said. This is Jesus speaking to a crowd of people who are not happy with him. He said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Uh, we're actually going to be looking at the next chapter here, but I just give you this verse to tie in because there is a connection here. Jesus is saying... Moses talked about me. You guys say you like Moses. You don't really like Moses. You say you like the religion of Moses. You don't really get it. Your heart is actually really far from the heart of what Moses was trying to do. But you don't understand that. But here's what you should know is Moses talked about me. Moses talked about me, Jesus said. If you don't understand or, or know how the whole Bible works, Moses was like uh, 1,500 years before Jesus. His writings, the first five books of the Bible, Moses wrote that. He's saying, Moses spoke about me. And if we have time, and I hope we will, we'll look at one of the specific things that Moses wrote down pertaining to Jesus who has now arrived. Uh, but 
Jesus says that. Moses spoke about me. That's what you should understand. And then now we flip to chapter 6, and it seems like we're just kind of like ending that chapter and starting with something new, but there's a connection. The same line of thought is continuing, and I want to help you understand this. The Bible, there is always much more under the surface. There's more when you start digging. So just got done saying, Jesus said, Moses talked about me. And then we turn the page and we begin John chapter 6, beginning verse 1. goes like this. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Okay, like I said, there's more going on here than meets the eye. And if you know the Old Testament, the, the 1,500 years of scriptures, of progressive prophecy that were written down before Jesus arrived, if you know this well, like much of the people who would have been reading this, you might be picking up what John is trying to lay down. He just got done talking about Moses and how Moses wrote about Jesus. Moses said that there's someone going to come like me. God's going to raise someone up like me. So Moses had said, we'll see that later, Moses said that there's someone like me who's going to come. And here, in the beginning of John chapter 6, we see that Jesus is the person like Moses. That's what the, the scripture is trying to subtly say in multiple ways. And you just picture um, what's going on, what, what I just read. You have Jesus, and it says that he crossed the sea. Uh, so he's, he's basically coming right near the banks of the water. There's a big crowd following Jesus. Jesus, the known miracle worker, they're following him. He goes up to a mountainside. That's just what we read in verse 3. So now he's teaching by a mountainside. And then there's the mention of Passover, which is the whole story of the Exodus. In talking about this, I realize that uh, for some people, it's like, don't know what you're talking about, knew it all this church stuff, Moses, the Exodus, mountainside, the water, sounds like it's important, don't know what you're talking about. Well, this is what I really want to see from Westview, and this is what I love about Westview, as I see things changing. There are more and more ears among us more and more people listening, paying attention, who have no idea what I'm talking about. I like that, okay? There's a lot more to the Bible than you uh, necessarily know when you first start coming. And when it can be a lot when you first start listening, hearing how there's an Old Testament and New Testament, how it all fits together. There's a lot. And I, I just need to catch you up on a little bit. If, if me talking about the Exodus and you don't know what I mean by the Exodus... That's good. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're paying attention. I'm going to fill in just a little bit to kind of catch you up to why this is relevant. Because John is drawing attention to the Exodus. He's saying that Jesus is the person Moses was talking about. Jesus is the man who is like Moses. The message of the Exodus is the message here that we're going to see as we keep reading John chapter 6. To understand John chapter 6, you have to understand what happened at the Exodus. So, what happened? Let's do a quick recap as it accounts, as it pertains to today. Uh, the story of the Exodus, the book of Exodus, begins with God's people being slaves. Right? They're slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. But the meaning, 
the truth of their slavery goes much deeper than that. The Old Testament book of Exodus begins with God's people being slaves. The current condition of mankind as Jesus has come into the world is once more mankind is caught in slavery. Slavery, how did Jesus say it? All who sin become slaves of sin. And someone will say, well, okay, maybe I'm a sinner, but I don't feel like a slave. And that needs to be unpacked. Really, uh, um, really shortly what I'll say is this. Being a slave means you work, you work, you work, and you don't really get paid for it. To be a sinner means that we're living our lives not for God. We're created and called to live for God, to know him, to live for him above all else. But as sinners, we don't do that. We live for other things. And what is the reward for that life? Nothing. It doesn't lead to any lasting payment. The heart desires that we have for security, for comfort, for reputation, all those things, things that God created us for, things that God is pleased to give us, living as a sinner is to live as a slave. We're chasing after things that will never satisfy. And maybe you've figured out this in life. Maybe you're starting to figure that out. Uh, but I need to get back to so, so the Exodus. So God's people were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves, and God sent someone to save them. God sent someone to save them from slavery. The Old Testament is the New Testament. That's the story of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in, in Exodus, God sent Moses to save them from slavery. And he came to his people. Moses had been equipped with the power to do miracles. He came to his people. He showed them the miracles. They worshiped. They said, this man is going to save us from the hand of King Pharaoh, Pharaoh of Egypt. And so he did the miracles, and they rejoiced. And then Moses went and talked to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said no. Pharaoh made life harder for the Israelites, and the Israelites turned on Moses. Curse you, Moses. Curse you. Look what you've done. You've made our life so much harder. The one who was sent to save them, they were ready to kill. And that, that becomes a theme, the people wanting to kill Moses. Once more, the Old Testament is the New Testament. Uh, it's the same story, the one that God sent to save us. We didn't treat very well. Well, God, what does he do? He rains down plagues on Egypt. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten plagues, ten plagues with the same message. I am your God. I'm here to protect you. I'm here to save you. Plagues came down on the oppressors while God's people were kept safe. They were kept safe in the land Comfort, you are my people. That's what each of the plagues brought. That was the message. And eventually, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, says, go, go, go. They leave, and they rejoice. And then on the banks of the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind, and he sends an army to go and destroy them. And on the banks of the Red Sea, the people of Israel, they see the sea on one side, and they see Pharaoh's army coming for them on the other side. 
They already saw 10 plagues. They already saw the power of God. Uh, they should have understood what was about to happen, but they didn't. Instead, what did they do? They started grumbling against Moses. Moses, curse you, Moses. Look what you've done. You brought us out here to die. And Moses gives them very, very, very important information. He tells them something that they should know, they should remember. He says, stand firm and fear not. The problems you see, you're never going to see again. The Egyptians that you see now, you're never going to see again. Stand firm and don't fear. And that's the message for God's people to hold on to. Stand firm, don't fear. And of course, the sea parts, the sea opens. Moses walks through, the people of Israel walk through, and the sea collapses on Pharaoh's army. They're gone. They're washed away. That's Exodus 14. Exodus 15 the people sing. The people rejoice. This is amazing. Praise the Lord. Worship him. Exodus 15. That's the beginning of Exodus 15. Then you get to the, the bottom of Exodus 15. They get done rejoicing. They're traveling through the wilderness. They're traveling through the desert. Oh, uh, we're out of water. We ran out of water. What do you think they did? Curse you, Moses. <laughs> Curse you. Uh, look what you've done. We're going to die here. God, who already showed them his goodness a bunch of times, what does God do? He creates water in the wilderness. He gives them water. Oh, crisis diverted. Thank you very much. That's Exodus 15. Exodus 16. Okay, going through the desert. They ran out of food. They ran out of food. What are, they, what are you going to do? Curse you, Moses. <laughs> For real. Curse you, Moses. Uh, uh, what did you bring us out here to die? What does God do? In his goodness, he gives them food. Okay, Exodus 16. Turn the page. Exodus 17. They ran out of water again. Well, this shouldn't be a problem. They've been through this before. What do you think they did? Curse you, Moses. <laughs> and now they're like ready to kill him. Okay? Uh, there's a lesson here. The lesson they're not getting isn't that the case? And God is growing understandably frustrated with the whole thing. What does he say? Uh, you see this actually in multiple times of the, of the scriptures, but uh, uh, you see this in the Psalms, you see this in Hebrews, you see this accounted for in uh, New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God's not pleased. And he says, these people see my power, but in their hearts they always go astray. And it says, he swore in his wrath, these people will never enter my rest. The slavery that he wanted to free them from, they didn't want to leave. The essence of our freedom is trusting him, knowing him, trusting him. Even though they saw Miracle after miracle, deliverance after deliverance, they didn't get to a place where they could trust. This is why I began with this whole discussion. There's another level. There's another level for us. There's another level. We need to beat a certain level and we need to get to the next level. The next level of trust. Trust and knowledge that God is with us. Even when there's no food, even when there's no water, even when there's an army coming for us, stand firm, do not fear, God's with us. That's the story of the Exodus, and it's a story that God's people, most of them never learned. Most of them died. 
Well, let's return to John chapter 6. So now, let's just read this again, these first four verses. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. This Jewish Passover festival was near. Now maybe you see this is, this is alluding to everything that happened in Exodus. After all that, uh, there was a time when Moses went up on the mountain, and that's where the Ten Commandments were given. They're seeing Jesus is doing the same thing. He's got the crowd. He's got the people, um, the Passover, the, the, the story of Exodus. It's happening. That's what this is about. It'll help us understand what happens next. You get to verse 5 of John chapter 6. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Okay. Once more, a familiar circumstance. Here, Jesus, the new Moses, is leading the people, and there's a big crowd, and there's no food. What are we going to do? And he, and, he, and, he, and he looks to Philip. Jesus has to love this. He looks to Philip and says, Philip, what are we going to do? And it says he said it to test them. Philip, what are we going to do? Here's something I've learned about people. Hard circumstances, scary circumstances. You've got a crowd of people, a crowd of hungry people looking at you. What do you do? When things are hard, this is what people do. First, they buckle up, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and they fight, and they strive, and they do everything they can do out of their self-will. That's what we do. But there comes a point where that doesn't work. There comes a point where you got 5,000 hungry mouths and eyes looking at you, and you got almost no food. There's a point where you're just like, impossible situation. There comes a point in life where you're in the desert and there's no water, impossible situation. You got an army coming at you, impossible situation. Circumstances are too hard for you to figure out, right? Comes a point where you get to that point and what do you do? Well, you got two options. The first one, you can do what everyone did in the Exodus. You can turn to despair, you can turn to grumbling, you can turn to complaining, you can turn to blaming people. You can turn to despair, which leads to death. That's one of your options. You can turn to despair. Turn to worrying. Staying up all night worrying. You can turn to that. Or you can turn to God. That's the test that Jesus lays upon Philip. Philip, what are we going to do? He did that to test him. Don't be surprised at these tests that come upon you, as the scriptures say. Don't be surprised when God leads you into a seemingly impossible situation. How do you pass that test? Stand firm. Don't fear. And watch. The problems you see, you're not going to see again. Stand firm and watch. Learn the lesson that the people in Exodus didn't learn Stand firm and watch. How should Philip have responded to Jesus? When Jesus said, hey, Philip, what are we going to do? What's the correct answer that Philip should have said? I have no idea. But I'm sure you have a plan. <laughs> and it says right here, Jesus did have a plan. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Philip didn't know. 
hey, Philip, what are we going to do? Not my problem, Jesus. Remember, you're God, not me. For real. We don't have to be God. He's God. Let him be the good God who loves us and cares for us and wants us to trust him. The correct answer is, Jesus, I don't know what we're going to do, but you do. You have a plan. Well, um, what happens next? Verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. All right, there's a number of things we could probably talk about here. I'm going to just draw your attention to the fact that everyone was able to eat as much as they wanted. That's what it says in uh, verse 11. They ate as much as they wanted. There was more than enough, and even after everyone ate, he had them go collect the food, and there was 12 baskets left over. So not only did everyone eat, they had more than they started with. There's a a little lesson here. God is rich. God owns everything. There is never any lack in God. And for those who trust in him, what do the scriptures say? I was young, and now I'm old. And I've never seen the children of the righteous begging for bread. There's always enough. Always enough for God's people. That's a a simple lesson. But there's a lesson that's even past that. And they still weren't getting that. You see, uh, Jesus ran off. They wanted to make him, they wanted to make him king. And he wouldn't have that. Uh, And the reason is, is they still had hearts like the people of Exodus. Uh, We see that as we keep reading. Jesus tells them, you all, he says to the big crowd, you're following me because I gave you bread. But you're not seeing the sign of what it points to. Um, And hopefully we're going to get to that next level and see the sign of what all this points to. Um, If we could just... Jump out of John for a moment. We're going to jump to uh, the book of Mark because there's something that happens that recounts the story we just read. Uh, Mark chapter 8, beginning verse 13. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. This is Jesus. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, 
Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? The whole story with the 5,000 people, that happened again with 4,000 on a different occasion. Just like in the book of Exodus, it was like the same thing over and over again, and the people not learning the lesson. Here we have the same thing, don't we? We have the disciples now. They're on a boat. They realize they only brought one loaf of bread, and they're worrying, and they're worrying. They're with Jesus, the guy who's already shown that he can do this quite easily, and they're worrying, it's just like when you read the book of Exodus and you're like, these people are blaming Moses and grumbling and they're worrying even though they've experienced his miraculous provision again and again and again. They're worrying. Well, that's what's happening here. And Jesus says something to them that we should grasp. He says, be careful. He warned them. This is verse 15. He warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So in the Bible, uh, this concept of yeast is this idea of, like, watch out for evil. And by the way, we're not, like, um, trying to make a commentary on nutrition. I mean, there's, in other contexts, it's totally fine to eat yeast. So don't bring it that way. We're not against gluten here. Not all of us, you know. Um, that's not what this is about. It's just, it's just a metaphor. Um, but, it, but yeast, without getting into it all, yeast was evil. It was the idea of evil. Be careful. Watch out for the evil of the Pharisees and the evil of Herod. And that's interesting. That should make us pause. Because when you read the New Testament, these are the bad guys. The bad guys. The Pharisees were religious hypocrites. They did religion, but their hearts were blind. Their hearts were evil. The Pharisees. And then you have Herod. Herod doesn't even care about pretending about religion. He's like a different kind of evil. He's like, I'm just going to do evil, and I don't care what people think. He's like, watch out, because you're on the verge of that. Like, you know about the evil of Herod, and perhaps you know about the evil of the Pharisees. That's where you are headed if you're not careful. What? What are they doing now? What are they doing that is in any way in par with Herod or the Pharisees? And Jesus is saying, watch out. What is it? It's the worrying that's rooted in not trusting him. That's where all sin comes from. If you think of sin as just like the external things, like don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you fail. You fail to understand the story of Exodus. It's not about that. It's about having hearts that don't know him, hearts that don't trust him, hearts that don't rest in him, because that is the key to freedom. That is the next level. That is the level of freedom from slavery that he has come to bring us. He has come to bring us into a life where we don't have to stay up late worrying because we have a God who is with us now and forever and who has promised us the land flowing with milk and honey, a land of comfort, security, identity, reputation, glory, all of it, all of it for us forever. Yet we, God's people, lay in bed and we worry um, Jesus says, be careful. It's the root of evil. 
be careful. Okay, okay. Um, there's more we can talk about here. Um, but what we're going to do, actually, I, I, I mentioned this, and I want to read it. Moses talked about Jesus. Uh, I actually brought this up in the Q&A last week, but I want you to see it. Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they, said, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Okay, uh, this, this, is, this is more, uh, this is really cool, actually, when you understand what is happening here. And I need to bring you back to the, the story of the Exodus. So I told you, like chapter after chapter after chapter, the people don't trust him. Okay? They see his miraculous hand, and they don't trust him. They fail to trust him again and again and again. That's chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. You know, just the same story going over and over and over again. Then you get to Exodus chapter 19, and God says to Moses, and Moses says to the people, uh, God says, obey my voice and keep my covenant. I'll be your God. Obey my voice, keep my covenant. I'll be your God. And the people in Exodus 19, they say, all that the Lord says we will do, which on the surface sounds like the right answer. But after reading the last chapters, it's the most blind answer, okay? It's like, who are we to ever sin against God? It's kind of like this attitude of just blatant pride and just obliviousness to who they have been up until this point. To say, oh yeah, we're going to obey everything God says. You know us. You know me. Of course, Moses, it's, it's, it's me you're talking to. Of course, of course we're going to follow. Of course you won't, okay? Of course we've discovered hardness of heart. Same thing Jesus accuses the people of. Of course you won't. Of course you will fail. But they don't get that in the beginning of Exodus chapter 19. So what does God do? Moses goes up to the mountain and the Ten Commandments are given. The people hear the voice of God. Thou shall not Thou shall not. You shall have no other gods before me. I will be your God. Thou shall not. They hear the voice. They see the thunder. And for a slight moment, they get it. Okay? For a slight moment, these grumbly, unbelieving people, they get it. And what they say is, we can't do it. We can't do it. We need someone. We, we cannot. We cannot bear this God. Moses... You go and talk to God. If God has a message. You come and talk to us because we cannot stand before him. For a moment, they understood that they were sinners with sinful hearts who needed someone to help them. For a moment, they got it. And here, years later, Moses is saying, remember what you asked for on the day? Remember when you asked for someone to go between you and God? God said that was good. It was good for you to say that. And that person's coming. And it's someone you're going to need to listen to. The 
the person who will stand between sinners and Almighty God, that person's coming. And let me break it down for you. If you've discovered that you're just like the, you're just like the Israelites, okay, I'm not going to stand here and be like, hey, you guys should be like me because I don't worry. <laughs> yeah, right, okay? It's not true. It's not true. I can be a pretty anxious person. I got to remind myself of these truths. I got to preach to myself all the time. All the time I got to say, stand firm, stand firm, don't fear, watch. God's going to do it. And if I'm not careful, I can stay up late worrying. All right? Here's the point. Here's the point. We're sinners. We're prone to that. We need someone to do what we can't do. We need someone to stand in our place. We need someone who can obey. We need someone who can trust. And that person has come. Jesus is the one. He's the one that can fulfill the law. He's the one that can live a perfect life. He's the one who can walk in faith and obedience and trust in God when we can't. He came to be our Savior for all who would look to him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to bring it back. This is the last verse I have for you. Pay attention. So uh, after the whole feeding of the 5,000, there's an episode we don't have time for. Jesus walks on water. Maybe we'll touch on it uh, next week. But you got this big crowd following him. And you get to verse 25, and it says, they found him on the other side of the lake. And they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to, be, to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Let me help you understand the sinful nature uh, that we all have. It's a sinful nature that says, I can do it. Okay, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. Oh, trust and obey God, I can do it. Oh, be a good person, I can do it. If I work hard, I can do it. That's what empty, false religion comes from. This attitude of, oh, we got these rules, we can do it. Those, those sinful people over there, they, they can't. Uh, we look down on other people because we're the good religious people who can follow the rules and they're not. It's where hypocritical, dead, empty religion comes from. This attitude that says, we can do it. But anyone who's walked in the wilderness and saw the sinful, unbelieving hearts that spring out from us, we understand, no, we can't do it. Can't do it. Uh, I tell this story real quick. I had this friend. I had this friend, okay? Um, well, when I first met him, he had been part of a cult, okay, straight up uh, uh, cult, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and not to get into everything they believe, but they deny the essence of the gospel, the free gift of the gospel. They deny that. They, they, they say that's not true, and he had been part of that, okay, and uh, he was good at following the rules. He was really good, really good, until the day he wasn't, and they kicked him out. Uh, and he wasn't allowed to talk to his family. His family wasn't allowed to talk to him, more likely, what was more, you know, more accurately what was going on. Uh, and like, so he had lived this life, and now he had no one because they all said, no, you know, you 
you failed, and so you're out. And, um, and that's when I met him. And I remember talking with him about the gospel, and I remember saying, it's free. You know that? Like, God, God, Jesus is our Savior, and it's not about you and what you can do. It's about him and what he did, living a perfect life in our place, dying for our sins. And my friend T, I remember, I'll never forget it. He said to me, I wish I could believe that. I wish that was the truth. And I remember I was like, you know what? I can work with that. Uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just read the Bible and pray. Just read the Bible and pray and ask for God to open your eyes. Just read the Bible and pray. Like, promise me you'll do that. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. And then we got together sometime later, and he's like, you know what? I did what you said. Um, and, uh, and this is the verse that I found. It's, and it's, it's, it's the part where I just read where, where Jesus is talking to this crowd, and he says, don't work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? So that's a good question. Jesus said, don't work for everything that's going to perish. Work for the food that's going to endure, for everlasting. That's what you should be working for. And then they're like, okay, what do you want us to do? We'll do it. What's the work? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's the great work. That's, that, what that is, it's kind of like an anti-work, okay? It's true. If you understand this and you understand what human nature wants to do, like we, we want to have this attitude of like, we can do it, we can do it, we can do it, and the work of God is actually stop because no, you can't, okay? Stop because your hearts are sinful and sick. Stop. But the good news is, you don't have to. You don't, you don't have to do anything. Just believe in the one that God has sent. Believe, not in the goodness of yourself, but in the goodness of him. The goodness of God, who out of his great love, sent Jesus to be our savior. Everything that we worry about, he wants to give us. Comfort, security, and identity. He wants to give it to us all. And the next level, the next level where all this comes from, the next level is knowing him, knowing his goodness, because that's where this freedom comes from. Knowing and trusting he's for me forever. Hallelujah. What a God. What a God we have. That is the life that he's calling us to, and it's free. You can have it. You don't have to get to a certain point of holiness before you can get to that next level. You can have it. As a sinner, you can have it. Not because you're good, but because he's good. And he sent his son to be the savior of sinners like you and I. Hallelujah. Father God, help us believe. Help us believe. Help us rest and believe and trust. Work in our hearts so that we can on the day of testing, so that we can stand firm and not fear. As you live in us, Lord, give us such faith and give us such joy. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. God is good. Amen.
All right, well, we have a time of asking Charlie questions and having him respond. So if you're in the room, uh, we have a runner with a mic who will uh, come around. And if you just raise your hand, they'll come and um, let you ask your question in person. But if you're too shy to do that or if you're tuning in from home, uh, you can text your, uh, your question to the number on the screen, and I'll get that on my phone and be able to uh, ask the question. So while we wait for the first questions to come in, I do have a question. Charlie, can you put your message into perspective for those people who are listening um, who might have felt like their lives didn't turn out the way they thought. You know, maybe they're waiting for something that hasn't happened yet or something happened that it, it wasn't the way that they thought it was. What, how, can you put that into perspective for us? Yeah. Uh, well, I think that it relates to the whole idea of, hey, Philip, what are you going to do? And the correct answer is, I don't know, but you have a plan. And a lot of times, very often, God's plan isn't our plan. But his plan is always better. It might involve more waiting, probably involves more pain, but the payoff is always worth it. And we'll always, if we stand firm, and don't give in to fear. The scriptures will prove to be true. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Doesn't always happen according to our timeline. Doesn't always happen according to our plan, but it always proves true in the end. So if things aren't going as planned, you're not alone. None of us are God. Other than God, we're not the ones who make the plans. Surrender to his plan, stand firm, don't give in to fear, and we're going to see the God who works out all things for good is going to do it one more time. All right, we have a question in the back. Good morning. Um, I have two uh, questions. The first one is, why did God harden the Pharaoh's heart towards the Israelite? Perhaps if his heart has not been adding, it will have allowed them to go in peace. I'm not sure I caught the question. Uh, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Okay. Um, and that's a long conversation. Sometimes you see in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh hardening his own heart. But most of the time, you actually see God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And before Moses even goes to Pharaoh... God says, I'm going to harden his heart. He's going to say no. And here's the truth. Um, God seems to like a good story. <laughs> That's part of it. Um, as in, if God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart, there would be no Red Sea. There'd be no moment of glory. But it's also for our testing. We need to experience this. We need to experience these impossible situations because the whole point is coming to a life of trust in him. If it started with just Moses going to Pharaoh and say, hey, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, sounds like a plan. Go ahead, okay? The people would have never learned this great lesson of we need to trust him even when Pharaoh's army is coming to kill us and we're surrounded. Okay, that's... So um, God is working out all things, including the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, he's working on all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
that's, a, uh, that's not a, a full answer because there's a lot more questions and things that we could discuss relating to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Um, but that's all we can do for now. Uh, that might be a good discussion for a podcast. We've been kind of slow on our podcast over the summer, you might have noticed, uh, vacations and such, but we'll, we'll make a note of jumping back into that. Um, when the Israelites were thirsty and they needed water, God told Moses to stretch his rod towards the rock, but eventually he struck the rock. And for that, that caused him to, see the, to get to the promised land. Why can't God forgive him Consider the fact that um, he was frustrated with all the attitudes of the Israelites and also considering what he has been passing through with them up to, to, to that point. Uh, why? Though I, I, I missed part of it, but the question was why couldn't God forgive Moses for what Moses did? Okay, good question. Very important lesson there. Yeah, so as you know, the second time they ran out of water, and they grumbled against Moses. And God said, hey, uh, you know, hit this rock, tap it, water will come out, everything will be fine. Moses, he went out there. And he was like, you grumblers. You know, he, he, he took an attitude with the people. And he hit this, the thing twice, I think. And God said, you're going to die, Moses. And there's some real question there of what's going on? What did you do that was so bad? Uh, and there's a very important lesson. Um, Moses, the scriptures tell us in the Old Testament, was the most humble man ever to live. And he was killed by God because of pride. <laughs> what does that tell the rest of us? <laughs> okay? Uh, all of us have hearts that go astray. Moses looked at the people as if he was better than them. Okay, you unbelieving grumblers, I would never do such a thing. How dare you? Wrong, Moses. Okay, wrong. You're just like the rest of them. Okay, you struggle with sin like everyone else. Hardness of heart, you're just like everyone else. Okay, there's a longer conversation we can have, but the whole concept, the Old Testament, stories like this scream for what theologians sometimes would say, the better Moses. We need the better Moses. And Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus was like Moses, but he had a heart of trust and humility and love. Uh, the point uh, that we're supposed to see is Moses is not the Savior. Okay, even Moses needed a Savior. Um, but if you're going to actually think like God was too harsh for saying, Moses, you're not going to enter the promised land because that's what God said to him, Moses did. In the New Testament, Moses was standing there next to Elijah um, at the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, God's grace extends to Moses, but the point is Moses needs a Savior like the rest of us. And Moses has a Savior, uh, Jesus. Here's a question from the text line. Practically and financially, how do we practice uh, belief in God's provision with living with financial discipline? Joseph led people to save in the time of plenty so they'd survive in lean years. How do we balance saving and living lean with trusting our savings will rebound in these tough economic times? Wow. Okay, so there is a question that really is not... Um, it's, it's just not my lane. 
in the question of there's other people that could give a better answer on like just how to be wise with your finances. There's people in the church that uh, uh, there's a number of people. Uh, message me if you want me to put you in touch with uh, some people that I talk to about uh, financial matters. But there is principles from scripture that I can tell you. Um, generosity. There's never a circumstance where things are too scarce to be generous. Because when God is with us, there's always enough bread. There's always going to be enough. Um, it's impossible. Christians sometimes say uh, it's impossible to outgive God. That's very biblical. It's, you see that in lots of ways in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, so I would say when you feel pressure to not be generous, it's time to really just start saving and holding on to what's ours because scarcity is coming. That's probably coming from an attitude of, uh-oh, maybe God's going to stop helping us type thing. So I would say, like, when you feel that pressure to hold on to what you have, it might be a time to even be more generous. Um, so that's probably all I'd say about that. Well, and God wants us to be good stewards. Like, you weren't up here saying, don't worry about it. Just do whatever. And yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, don't. don't <laughs> just live how you want. And it's fine. I mean, a big part of being good stewards is not wasting your money on things that are not helpful uh, things that are fruitless and knowing like how much is good to spend on like fun activities. I mean, some of it certainly is. Uh, how, how much isn't? Uh, I mean, other questions that probably someone else could answer better than me. But one thing I can get from the Bible is that there's never a time when it's like we can't afford to be generous. Um, I, and that's somewhere I think we can all grow. We can all grow in generosity. So. All right, this is going to be our last question. I don't see any hands in the, the room, so... Oh, we got one here. So second to last question. Um, I heard the crossing of the Red Sea is equivalent to their baptism. Can you speak to this? Yeah, First uh, Corinthians chapter 10 uh, speaks about, like, uh, they were all under the sea, and they all... Uh, well, actually, it's kind of concerning. Um, the connection that connects the Red Sea with baptism basically says... They were all baptized by the sea. They all ate the spiritual food, which was manna in the Old Testament, but it's like equating it with communion. But the message in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which says that, says, and with most of them, God was not pleased, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, where basically they died. And so there is a little bit of message there in saying, don't put your trust in external baptism, okay? The fact that you were baptized by water that alone counts for nothing because look at all those people who walked through the Red Sea. They were baptized in a sense also and they all died. So make sure that your baptism is a baptism of the heart. Make sure it's a heart that's actually turned to him in faith. Baptism is important, okay? We're going to be doing more baptisms soon. And by the way, if you want to be baptized, if you're at a place where you're like, you know what, I want to live for Jesus. I'm ready to believe. I'm ready to surrender. I need him. Come and talk to me because you need to get baptized. Baptism is important. For some people, you've been putting it off for some reason. Do it. Something Jesus said. Get baptized. Baptism is important. 
But if the external baptism is all that's happening, it counts for nothing. But yeah, the Red Sea, it was a, it was a foreshadow of baptism. Just like manna in the wilderness was a foreshadow of communion, which we'll probably talk about next week as it comes up later in John chapter 6. Last question down here. Just to clarify, uh, video games are biblical? Yes. Next question. <laughs> He's like, did my wife hear that? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, no, no. But it, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. You're going to get some emails this week? <laughs> you know what? All things are permissible. Not all things are beneficial. Um, um, all things are permissible, but I will not let anything have mastery over me. Here's the point. God created, uh, you know, things good to be received with thanksgiving. Like anything else. I can play video games. I can be like, praise God for recreation and rest. Okay? Or I can play video games and ignore my responsibilities, neglect my family, neglect my wife. And in that case, the problem isn't really the video games. Okay? Um, but the video games in and of itself, yeah, it's, Form a rest, okay? All right, that was all for Q&A today. Um, sorry if we didn't get to your question. We try to answer some of them during the week as well. Let me just pray for us and we'll continue on. Father, thank you that you're a God who is with us and that you are a God who gives us everything we need and um, even more than, than what we know we need. I just ask that you would increase our faith in you uh, when we are struggling to um, see answered prayers in our lives or um, where things are not turning out the way that we thought they would, I pray that you would help us to see that your hand is still on our lives and that you would help us to believe in you and your goodness. And when we doubt that, I pray that we would just look at Jesus and what you uh, did through him for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.